This is Chapter 25 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. In this week's episode, our Pat Farnack speaks with New York Times bestselling author Linda Fairstein about her newest thriller. Then, a former special ops member gives us an insider's take on America's use of drones. And we wrap up with a book that breaks down the science of the air we breathe. Deadfall is Linda Fairstein's 19th novel featuring assistant DA Alexandra Cooper. If you read her last book, you know it ended with a cliffhanger featuring the murder of a major character. Don't worry, no spoilers here. And that's where the new book picks up. She recently spoke with our Pat Farnack. I'm surprised you killed off a major character. I did. Well, you know, you need to evolve in these books. You need to have... (laughs) movement. I'd done some things with him that put his integrity in question, ooh, three, four books back, I guess starting Devil's Bridge Mm -hmm. a few books ago. So it was either rehabilitate him or knock him off. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it was time. It was time. I guess it was time. Opens up a whole, it's a role, as you know, that, that has to be refilled. Linda, what a way to do it, though. Not only did Alex Cooper see it, but he dropped right on top of her. That is another deadfall. Yes, he <laughs> dropped right on top of her. Uh, so not only is she a witness, but what I loved doing in this book, the first 100 pages without spoiling anything, she's really one of the suspects. And so for the first time, it was it was a real uh, writing challenge because I turned the tables on her and the federal prosecutors running the task force investigating this high-profile murder really uh, have to cross-examine her. And so she gets the treatment that she's doled out so many times over the years. And when you're looking to, you know, to change up a book and make it, make it different for the reader and exciting for the reader, this was, I thought, a good way to do it. And Alex is not a good suspect. <laughs> she does not react well to being in the no, hot seat. She does not. <laughs> She's a little temperamental. The reason why I enjoy, another reason that I enjoy your book so much is every book focuses on a different part of New York, uh, often places that we pass by every day and we don't know very much about when it comes to right down to it. And in this book, in Deadfall, you talk about the Bronx Zoological Park not the Bronx Zoo, mind you. I grew up in Mount Vernon, so for your listeners local, it's very nearby. And um, weekends, if if the neighborhood kids behaved well, there was always a parent to take us 15 minutes down the parkway to the Bronx Zoo. Uh, it was a very different thing at that time. Your older listeners will remember that, that zoos were, well, the animals were in cages. They The lions were in a house smaller than my apartment where they just paced back and forth. And along the way, zoos became major institutions for conservation of species, not only education of the people who go there. So the Bronx Zoo is just one of the most exciting places in New York City. And I went back to do research, of course, as a very grown-up adult, and they they took me behind the scenes and, and sent me with animal keepers who really the good ones do talk to the animals. Uh, and I just had a an access uh, that was great fun. I'm going back uh, when the book launches, um, going to do an event and give away some books at the zoo. And it's just a fascinating place. It does good work. It's really doing conservation around the world with the Wildlife Conservation Society. But it's a part of New York. Um, a lot of my friends say, you know, I've never been to the Bronx Zoo. So 
I hope Deadfall makes them want to go. I had no idea of the magnitude of how wildlife are being slaughtered and the worldwide trafficking in these uh, animal parts. I've been involved in conservation for a couple of decades through a friend who actually uh, ran a conservation center, but I haven't followed it that consistently. And what drew me to it as a subject is the last few years and certainly the last eight months, uh, the stories come almost every day Mm. about the tragedies, about how many elephants are left in the world. I mean, elephants always captivated me as a kid, seeing them first in a zoo and, of course, in a circus. And they're not going to be in either of those places anymore because mm. they are not good habitats for for the poor things to live. But um, elephants, majestic creatures slaughtered because of ivory tusks. Rhinos, there are so few in the world. Um, tigers, because of traditional Asian medicine, which really teaches that if you have a son, he'll get courage and he'll be made stronger if he drinks tiger milk. Mm. Um, So there are all these, uh, some very profitable um, misconceptions about what these animals should be used for. Uh, And the books are meant to be entertainments, they're meant to be fun, but I always feel if I can layer in something the reader can learn, we're all a little richer for that. Well, we are also learning in Deadfall about big game hunting going on even within the confines of the United States. Yes. Another huge surprise to me. My husband, uh, I'm recently remarried. My husband has a place in Montana, and we go out there and everybody hunts. And Sometimes in winter, people hunt to feed themselves, and I understand that, but the animals are so beautiful and the price tags on their head are extraordinary. And we even, some of these places, not me when I say we, but we Americans even import endangered species from Africa to to be wild game to shoot on preserves, like in Texas. So, I don't know, it could break your heart looking at the pictures uh, if you like and care about animals. And I just wanted to go into that world. And from wildlife to a wild and crazy relationship, Alexander and Mike, (laughs) there was a sweetness that I didn't sense to such a degree in other books. It's been a long and tortured relationship. (laughs) Um, When when I set up the characters, when I created them in 1996 for the first book, Final Jeopardy, uh, Mike was very much the homicide detective sidekick. And I had nothing else planned for him. Alex had a boyfriend. It became clear by book three that um, the boyfriend didn't always work, wasn't there for what Alex needed, didn't understand her world. (laughs) She went through a few boyfriends. And I will say that in every bookstore appearance, everyone, if there were eight people or 80, uh, there was always among the first three questions, when are you getting Alex and Mike together? Oh, and and I would say that people saw it before I did. Good readers saw it and wanted it before I was even aware so much of, of the need the need to do that. And um, I once made the mistake. I want to say it was the second or third book of. I was in a great bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, The Poison Pen, and a reader said that, and I left left and looked at her and said. 
get a grip. This is only fiction. Like, why are you thinking of the love lives of the, the characters? And my husband took me aside after the signing, and he said, what a terrible thing you just did. How rude to your readers. You should be thrilled that your characters are people who come alive to the reader. And the answer to that is, hmm, I'll have to think about how they get together, not get a grip. So uh, I've learned so much from fans, uh, and and fans weighed in. Like, did they was it taking too long? Did they want the relationship? Some didn't want the relationship. And uh, the only thing that's clear to me: these are not romance novels; they're crime novels; they're murder mm-hmm. mysteries. So we don't go into the bedroom to see what happens. Yeah, we yeah. don't we don't uh, do that part of the scene. But but it's just. Um, it's really been fun to have people receive these characters as real people. Now, I'm, I know you well enough to know you're probably working on the next one. I am. <laughs> Give me a break. So, <laughs> no, really. <laughs> Come on, Pat, right. back and off. Back <laughs> off, Pat. You know how hard this is. Um, and that's, again, the great thing of having loyal fans, the readers, devour these books if they if they're with you and they um the first question is when's the next one Mm -hmm. so um i know got to feed that so i'm of course working on it done a lot of the research um and there will be an alex cooper number 20 untitled yet and uh um they'll be back those who survive this adventure will be back If you've ever been curious about America's use of drones, a new book by a former special ops member pulls back the curtain. Our Rob Hawley has more. A great part of the war of the future, and really the war of today, is that unblinking eye in the sky, the drone. And few people have had a better view of that than Brett Velikovich. He's a former special operations intelligence analyst in the U.S. military, ran a Delta Force team that was among the first to fly drones in the hunt for terrorists. He has a new book called Drone Warrior, an elite soldier's inside account of the hunt for America's most dangerous enemies. It is also in the process of being made into a movie by Michael Bay and Paramount Pictures. Brett joins us to talk about the book and his experiences. First, why write this book now? Well, for me, it was really to, to show a different perspective of um, how how drones work and how how many people are behind um, the, these programs and really going out there and saving lives. I think there's this media, you know, kind of perception that drones are, are out there indiscriminately, you know, killing folks and that there's not the a method um, uh, to, to everything behind it. And I really wanted I really wanted people to hear the stories from uh, the men and women, the, the brilliant minds that are behind this technology and how they go about doing their work so that it can educate uh, people on the benefits of, of drone technology and how how they're really being used to save lives um, uh, versus taking it, which is kind of, kind of this narrative that exists right now in the media. You use the phrase a new generation of warfighters, and I think that speaks a lot to what you just talked about with the method and, and how this is going about. And you're kind of on this leading edge of this new generation of warfighters, but define that for us. What do you mean when you say that? So what I mean is that never before in the history of wars have we ever had 
this ability to know so much about our enemy. When you think, you know, for years, we've been fighting wars, we've been killing people, you know, across the battlefield. But, you know, you know, conventional conventional wars were fought where, you know, there's a a gray helmet in a trench and um, you don't necessarily know that infantry guy doesn't necessarily know who that person is they're fighting. They just know that they're coming to kill them and they better they better stop that before it's too late. With drone technology, you know, it's really just created this revolution on how wars were fought, because now we actually have the ability to know a lot about our enemy and then make the decisions, uh, the hard decisions to still, you know, to go after them. And so the the benefits are endless. And there's no doubt that the way, you know, future wars will be fought with this technology, because I saw this, this huge boost of it, because I joined after 9-11. And I really, you know, in my time in the military, all I know, all I knew was war. And I, and all I saw was, um, was uh, things on the battlefield that, um, that, uh, you know, folks, you know, generally never get to see at such a young age. And I saw this, uh, you know, people adapting drones in a way that could help save lives. And, and I, I think I think there's no doubt in my mind that that future wars will include them. You, obviously, we talk a lot about the drones or the, or the UAVs, but it's also about really the communications and the sharing. At one point, you tell the story about a hunt for Osama, I think, uh, and it, it and one of the key leads came from an analyst who wasn't in the box with you, but was watching what you were watching and said, hey, I recognize that car. How important is that, not just the drones, but the communication and the sharing and that kind of real-time um, collaboration? Well, of course. I mean, and these these networks uh, that we worked within, they're they're all interconnected. They're built in a way that everyone is sharing information. You know, I was surrounded by some of the most brilliant minds in in this business, and we had we had guys from different uh, agencies and organizations that were all put into this this uh, this operation center. And the whole idea was that we could collaborate and and very quickly go after the enemy. And the drones were really the missing piece of that. You know, my job was the analysis side, so I wasn't actually piloting them. I wasn't, I wasn't the one moving the camera around. My job was to to hunt down these terrorists, and drones were a way that I used uh, you know, a, a mechanism for us being able to find them. It was it wasn't the only tool we used, but it was a big piece of that, a missing piece of the puzzle that we needed to help confirm or deny information that our group had basically collected to go after these guys. And so, uh, once once we finally you know were able to fix or fi- find these guys to a position, you know, the, the, the terrorists that we were hunting to a particular car or a place on the map, we then collectively uh, decided, you know, what to do next. Do we go in and capture them? Do we watch them a little bit longer because now we, we have this ability or do we just need to go now because they're about to, you know, conduct an attack? And what, what's going to surprise a lot of people when they read Drone Warrior is that just how much drones are really used for information gathering instead of striking targets. And most, you know, 99% of the time, the, the drone is really used to provide information to uh, the uh, you know special operations, special forces guys uh, on the ground that are going in to conduct uh, an operation or a raid, and the importance of that just you know cannot be uh, overstated uh, in terms of uh, how much information um, you get from the eyes of the drone when they're flying and looking at things from different angles. At one point, you said that the the technology was driving you. And so the and you talk about the toll that that took on you physically and mentally. So talk a little bit about that toll and how is that different from the toll that warfare takes on the operators actually out in the field? 
Yeah, I mean, for for guys that were in the position I was, you know, there was there was very little time that we got to sleep, and that was because um, we felt. Uh, that we had this great responsibility that we were given because not everyone at the time was uh, at the time I was doing this really had um, you know access and control over uh, what uh, these predator drones were staring at and it was our job to to make sure that they were being used the right way and so when you think about these multi-million dollar machines you don't want them just burning holes in the sky essentially and and circling and not looking at something important and so that that mental toll of just feeling almost like you know, if your team doesn't find this terrorist um, that he lives another day to, um, you know, potentially hurt innocent people, and we were going after the worst of the worst. I mean, some of the most evil human beings on the planet, and and you you become almost addicted to getting more of them. And, you know, when I think about some of the regrets I have, or or when I would leave these deployments, I would think, you know, I can't believe we missed this guy. I can't, I really wish that we had gotten, you know, so-and-so. And those things keep you up at night because you know how close, how close you were to him. And I would come back from these deployments, 50, 60 pounds lighter. My face would be ghostly white. You know, people, family around me wouldn't, wouldn't recognize me because of the stress and the, and, and the burden of, of making sure, um, that that we were were using the, the technology and, and using it in a way that could save soldiers from from getting hurt and so um, you know same thing with all the people around me I mean we had we had guys that I worked with that had built beds um, next to their computers because they didn't want to worry about walking walking back to their room because they didn't want to miss something on the drone video uh, that we were staring at um, and we would have the drone video piped into our the few times we did you know a few hours of the night we did get sleep we would even have them piped into our room so I'd switch from you know a CBS or a CNN to uh, to a um, the live video of the drone circling above and, and that's how obsessed we came and after a while that that does take a, a toll on your mind um, knowing that that you're you're the guy that's responsible for kind of um, selecting these these targets to go after and making sure that they're 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 captured or removed from the battlefield obviously this book is a lot about drone warfare and their use on the field of battle but there are so many other uses for drones outside of warfare how how should we be thinking about them in civilian life how can they be best put to use in places where we're not worried about terrorists where we're not worried about finding enemies well, to me, this is the bigger thing that drones can do outside of outside of war. This is the bigger purpose of drone technology, and I really hope that the U.S. government starts putting more funding into uh, taking a technology that would normally be used for war and using it for uh, efforts to help um, solve some of these more you know humanitarian crises that exist. Because I see just how capable uh, they were for fighting terrorists, and I know. Uh, hands down that they can be used for uh, things like wildlife conservation, used for delivering medical aid, used for, you know, uh, uh, solving some of these really larger um, society issues um, that, that exist. And so what we're seeing right now in the commercial space, because that's all I deal with right now is consumer and commercial drones, we're seeing this evolution of of um, manufacturers that are building drones to help farmers, folks that are drones that are spraying pesticides, you know, drones that are mapping out construction sites. And there's just this larger um, explosion of drone technology that is happening right now in the civilian world that at some point will probably, you know, surpass how much money is being spent on the military space and, and more of the ones that are used for, for war fighting. 
Brett Velikovich, thanks for joining us. He is the author of Drone Warrior, an elite soldier's inside account of the hunt for America's most dangerous enemies, published by Day Street Books. How much do you know about the air you breathe? I mean, outside of those stories about pollution that give you pause. Do you know what it's made out of? Do you know why it's unique to Earth? How about how early scientists figured it all out? Well, Sam Keen answers all those questions and more, and in a very entertaining way, I might add, in his new book, Caesar's Last Breath. So let's take a deep breath and dive on in. Why did you choose to write about this subject matter? Uh, there were a couple of reasons. Uh, in all of my books, I like to pick a topic where I can have like a scientific core or a theme to it and then kind of jump off into a lot of different other areas of human life. Uh, you know, things like war or music, art, whatever it might be. And I knew that the air would give me a good opportunity to do that because it affects our lives and all sorts of hidden ways that we don't think about, uh, but when you look at it, it really does influence us in a lot of uh, kind of unusual ways. Um, and the second reason was that it is, the air is a very important, um, kind of a topical matter right now, uh, given, you know, climate change, a lot of worries about environmental problems, things like that. So a combination of having a lot of good material for stories and then knowing it was a topical important issue was uh, very appealing to me. So before picking up your book, I'd never heard of the scientific conundrum theory about Caesar's last breath. Explain that a little bit. Sure. It's sort of a classic problem in chemistry and physics classes. They kind of toss it out to students or whatever. So the question is, what are the odds that you are inhaling right now a molecule that Julius Caesar exhaled when he was assassinated during his last breath uh, in 44 BC in Rome. And if you do the math, uh, it turns out that the odds are very good that you inhale one molecule or so every single time you take a breath. And that seems almost impossible, uh, given how long ago Caesar died, given how small a single individual breath is compared to the entire gigantic atmosphere, but it actually does work out that where you're probably breathing a molecule or so each time, and over the course of a day, it's almost a statistical certainty that you are breathing in several thousand molecules that he exhaled when he died. So it's this kind of unusual connection to the past that you would probably never think about, but it's a direct material connection with not only Caesar, but you could sort of extend the problem and talk about anyone in history and their connection to them through their last breath. And it's a problem that you carry throughout your entire book, right up to the end where you talk about going to other planets and colonizing other worlds after we destroy ours. Yeah, hopefully not. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. And I will come back to that. But uh but first, the, all the stories that you put in there about the the scientists who really worked to establish what our air was made of, how did you land on which stories to tell? Well, I did want to cover all of the major gases that we breathe. So, you know, oxygen and uh, nitrogen are the big ones we breathe. But there's also a bunch of trace gases that we inhale with each breath. So I wanted to make sure I covered all of those gases to give you a pretty complete idea of what it is you're breathing, the sort of cocktail of gases that we're breathing. 
beyond that, as far as the specific stories, I just wanted to, you know, write things that were memorable, that were interesting, but also things that illuminated the science and hopefully illuminated them in a way that you uh, wouldn't really think about or an unusual story about them. So not just sort of the typical, uh, you know, stories that you might expect about, you know, from science classes, things like that. Take a little bit of a different angle and really emphasize the people involved with them. You know, uh, the heroes, the villains, the conflict they went through, all of the things that really make a juicy story uh, are the things that make a good juicy science story, too. So I wanted to make sure they were good stories, first of all. I, I think you hit that on the head. You also have a lot of humor through this book. And if listeners need any more convincing, you have an entire chapter on farting. I do. I do. Um, there's one guy in particular, uh, a Frenchman in the late 1800s. He was known as Le Petomaine, which translates roughly to the fartomaniac. Um, and it sounds very lowbrow, but he was a performer on stage at the Moulin Rouge in Paris, late 1800s. And he was the single most popular performer that was there. He was a huge, huge hit. What he did basically was he did impressions through flatulence. So he would do animal impressions. He would, you know, uh, he would bleed out songs like the French national anthem and things like that. And as I said, it seems a little lowbrow in some way, and it is, but he had big fans. People like Renoir, the painter, was a fan. Ravel, the composer, was a fan. Freud was supposedly a fan. The king of the Belgians came to see him once. So a lot of people thought he was very talented, very good showman. And I put that chapter in the book because, you know, it's about gases. It's about one of the gases we interact with a lot in our daily life, something people are probably curious about. But I bet they don't know a lot about it, about how those gases get formed, where they came from, what their components are. A lot of people think that methane, for instance, is the part of uh, that part that smells bad. That's not true. Methane has no odor. It's other gases in there. So even this really basic, fundamental thing that we all experience all the time every day, uh, I think a lot of people don't know a lot of the details about it. So it was a kind of a fun, unusual way to get into something that we're all curious about, all want to know about, even if we're a little embarrassed to talk about it sometimes. And you totally know that guy would have had a reality show in this day and age. I, I'm sure, yes. He would have been notorious. <laughs> so all joking aside, though, it's really hard to believe or to wrap our heads around now that a lot of the knowledge we take for granted was considered controversial at the time when you know, these discoveries were being made. Yeah, there, even the idea that air exists, that there's this material out there in the world that we can't see, but it's still a real material, that idea was kind of foreign to humankind for thousands upon thousands of years. It wasn't until the 1600s that people started to kind of grasp the idea, and not until the 1700s that it was more widespread, where a lot of people believed that. So even the fact that the air exists, that there is this substance around us, uh, was something that a lot of people didn't realize. It was taken for granted for a very long time. And I guess you can kind of make that argument in this day and age for climate change. There are some people who will say that that doesn't exist and they're waiting for the proof. But you do spend, you know, the back half of your book or the last few chapters talking about climate change. And you take a grim view of uh, humanity's ability to act. Uh, I do a little bit. Uh, yeah, the last third of the book 
discusses ways that human beings have altered or changed the air. So things like radioactive fallout that's still around from weapons testing, um, other uh, pollutants, uh, gases we put in, things like that, and the effect it's having on the climate. Um, and I kind of link it back to some old controversies, kind of show parallels between now and then. And I guess what I talk about in the book is that it seems difficult to imagine that we're suddenly going to just curb consumption, stop consumption, you know, stop using cars, planes, stop telling people in places like India or China that they can't, you know, get up to the level, the standard of living that we have in places like the United States and Europe, that they just have to kind of hit pause on uh, their development so that we can keep the uh, carbon dioxide levels in the air the way they are. So, I'm a little doubtful that we're going to be able to really curb consumption in that way. Uh, there is the idea that we could maybe get the carbon out of the air, kind of make it, uh, take it from a gas, make it a solid, bury it somewhere, hopefully. But if those things don't work, I think one of the options we really have to consider is doing something called geoengineering, which is uh, kind of a big, scary idea. I don't know that it's a good idea, but... From some level, it might be one of the few options we have, doing something like spraying sulfur dioxide in the air to reflect sunlight back into space. And, you know, there are problems with all of them. You could pick apart each individual one. But I think those kind of ideas we have to at least consider at some point because, as I said, I'm a little doubtful that human beings, kind of given our nature and our ability to push problems down the road, are really going to act and do a lot about it. So are we doomed? I don't think we're doomed. Um, there is reason for concern, definitely. But no, I don't think we're doomed. I think uh, that we do have a good sense of the like, ability to kind of rally around problems when they get acute. Hopefully, we will take the problem seriously before it really gets acute and before it really, really starts to cause a lot of damage. I think there's sort of a mistaken impression out there that, uh, you know, a lot of people, they talk about, like, the Earth is doomed or the Earth is going to have problems. And I think a different way to look at it is maybe, you know, the Earth is going to survive. Life is going to survive. It's a question of human beings. Will human beings survive? Will human life and civilization survive? That's really the fragile thing, not the Earth itself. The Earth will go on. It's the things we cherish about civilization that are the fragile parts, and that really could be affected by something like uh, drastic climate change. Is that what you really hope people take away from your book? What I hope they take away is a better appreciation of the air. And just to think about the air, to think about this amazing gas that's around us all the time, and to think about these little stories flitting around in front of them, stories you're actually inhaling every time you take a breath. In the book, I talk about how you can basically reconstruct the whole history of the world every single time you take a breath based on the different gases, where they come from in Earth's history, the story behind them. So I hope it gives people a deeper appreciation of the air, in addition to the idea that air is a precious commodity. It's not something we think about, but it's something we have to maintain and be aware of. And with that, we close the book on this week's chapter. 
If you've liked what you've heard, and even if you didn't, email us at books at WCBS880.com. And check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880books.